you have a Bible, and I hope you do, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 4 is where we're going to be this morning. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, as we continue our series on how God grows healthy Christians. Hebrews chapter 4. Now, in Luke chapter 11, I know I just told you to turn to Hebrews chapter 4, but before we get there, in Luke chapter 11, Jesus has been walking with his disciples for a number of years, a number of months, a length of time, 11 chapters in Luke's gospel up to this point. And in Luke chapter 1, the disciples see Jesus do something that causes them to say, hold on, time out, wait a minute, we want you to teach us how to do that. In Luke chapter 11, verse 1, they see Jesus pray. And they say, wait a minute, time out, hold on. We want you to teach us how to pray that way. Luke chapter 11, verse 1, he says, uh, it says this. Now, Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of the disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. Now, Luke records that it was only one of the disciples that approached Jesus and asked the question, but I'm willing to bet, that is, I'd be willing to bet if I wasn't a Baptist, that it wasn't just the one disciple who had the question. It was all of them. They were all wondering, Jesus, wait a minute, would you teach us how to pray that way? Imagine being able to learn prayer from Jesus. You talk about the expert, right? Imagine being able to say, hey, Jesus, can you teach me how to pray that way? The disciples on this day, in this moment, in Luke chapter 11, said, Jesus, would you teach us how to pray? Now, my guess is that they never really stopped asking that question. My guess is that they never really stopped looking at Jesus and saying, would you teach us how to pray? You imagine the moments that the disciples had with Jesus, when Jesus performed great miracles, and they would see him pray in these great miracles. I imagine that they would have said, Jesus, would you teach us how to pray that way? You imagine how Jesus, when when Jesus went alone, just like in this passage, and he went alone to pray, you imagine them overhearing him talking to the Father, after which they would say to Jesus, would you teach us? how to pray. In the Garden of Gethsemane, when Jesus goes and he, he, he has this night of agonizing prayer to the point where, where, where the Bible says that he, he was sweating tears of blood, they would have watched Jesus pray and they would have walked away saying, Jesus, would you teach me how to pray? Jesus, would you teach me how to pray? The disciples never stopped asking that question and neither should we. We should never stop asking the question, Jesus, would you teach me how to pray? Would you teach me how to pray? The disciples knew something that we are still learning. They knew that there was spiritual life on the other side of learning how to pray. They knew that there was a category of life in the spiritual life that they said, we want to experience that, but the only way we can experience that kind of life is if we learn how to pray. Jesus, would you teach us how to pray? They knew that there was power on the other side of learning how to pray. And so they said, Jesus, would you teach teach us how to pray. They knew that there was joy on the other side of learning how to pray. And so they said, Lord, would you teach us how to pray? Have you ever felt like your spiritual life was meh? Like, eh, you know, I mean, 
It's not where you want it to be. It's just kind of blah. Well, the disciples knew that the only way you get out of meh and you get to where you want to go is through prayer. And so they said to Jesus, Lord, would you teach us how to pray? The disciples never stopped asking this question, and I think neither should we. And yet, we, I say that categorically, as Christians, we are all together, all too often, prayerless. We are prayerless Christians. One theologian said, it is no more possible to be a prayerless Christian than it is to be alive without breathing. And yet here we are, many of us saying, man, if I looked back on the last week, my prayer life was, well, what had happened was absent, right? Or or, or if I looked back over the past year, my prayer life was, well, uh, just not quite there. We are prayerless. Now, I think there are four questions that every prayerless Christian ought to ask in the midst of their prayerlessness. Four questions that every Christian that is prayerless, whether it's a season of prayerlessness or a long season of prayerlessness, whether it's a moment or a long season, Four questions for prayerless Christians. Number one, do you have someone better to talk to? I mean, when it comes to prayer, do you think about it? Do you have someone better to talk to? In Luke chapter 11, they said, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus taught them what we have come to know as the Lord's prayer, our Father in heaven. Many of you know it. And he said, pray this way. And then right after that, he tells them a story to make his point. And the story is basically, look, if if you're a parent and your kid asks you for something that is good for them, you're not going to give them something that is bad for them. That's not what parents do, right? Hey, dad, can I I have uh, something that's good for me? You don't give him something or her something that's bad for them. That's not what parents do. Jesus says, how much more so with your heavenly father? When you pray for something, how much more so is he not going to give you something that's good for you? So Jesus is making the point, when we understand the goodness of the Father, we are quick to pray. So in our seasons of prayerlessness, we ought to ask, wait a minute, do I have someone better to talk to? Now, the answer, of course, is no, right? No, not, not, at, not at all. You don't have anyone better than God to talk to. Do I have someone better to talk to? No, of course not. Now, some of us might say, well, I just, you know, I think about these things. I don't, I don't, I don't pray to God. I just think about them. Okay, well, that's like a prayer to yourself, which is not a good idea, right? So do you have someone better to talk to? No, of course not. Second question, do you think you can do better or do more on your own? Again, the answer is rather obvious. No, of course not, right? And yet we're prayerless. In the book of Acts, we often see the church gathered together and praying. Sometimes they are praying in moments at which if they asked us for our counsel, we would not tell them to pray. We would tell them to do something else. There's work to be done. Do this. Do that. Go there. Go there. Reach that person. Talk to that person. Go, go uh, over here. But, but what we find is that they are praying. Right? If they had stopped and said, okay, wait a minute, what do you think we should do? We probably would not counsel them to, to prayer. We would think, no, there's, there's greater work to be done. Oswald Chambers, in his uh, devotion, My Utmost for His Highest, reminds us that prayer does not prepare us for the greater work. Prayer is the greater work. It is the greater work. Do you think that you can do better or more on your own than pray? The answer is no. The answer is no, right? Just in case you were wondering, just the answer, no. If you're taking a test and this is the question, the answer is no. You'll get it right, all right? 
right? But functionally, what do we do? In our prayerlessness, we, we say, oh, I think I can do better without prayer. The third question is, has prayerlessness ever brought you more joy? Has prayerlessness ever brought you more joy? Again, the answer, rather obvious, is no. We've all had times that we didn't pray, but we should have. Every single person in the room can look back on a season or a decision or a moment and say, should have prayed that through a little bit more. Could have spent a little bit more time on that one, right, praying. But we don't. Why? Because we think that prayerlessness will bring us more joy, but it doesn't. Prayerlessness is functionally walking away from God. That's what it is. It's functionally walking away from God. Prayerlessness, if you're familiar with the story of the prodigal son, in which the younger, the the son says to his father, I don't want to be around you anymore. Give me my inheritance. I'm out of here. Prayerlessness is essentially us saying to our heavenly father, I don't need you. I'm better off without you. In fact, it's worse than that. It's not only us saying to God, I don't need you. It's us saying to God, I don't want you. Prayerlessness is us saying to God, I don't want you. Now, I don't think any of us are so so brash or bold as to verbally say that. But functionally, when we are prayerless Christians, That is what we're saying. Now, if you know the story of the prodigal son, right? How does the story end? It ends with the prodigal returning to the father in the same way your story can end with you returning to your father in prayer. So do you have someone better to talk to? No. Do you think you can do more or better on your own? No. Has prayerlessness ever brought you more joy? No. Then then the fourth question is this. So what's keeping you from it? What is keeping you from prayer? What is keeping you from prayer? I need, I think every once in a while, we as, a, uh, as Christians need to stop and ask this question of ourselves. What is keeping me from prayer? If I were to tell you that you had a $1 million deposit waiting to be deposited into your bank account, there was just one or two things you needed to do in order to get this money into your account. Just one or two things preventing you from having all of that money in your credited to your account. I'm guessing, right, that you would do whatever it took to remove the obstacles between you and that million dollars, right? I'm guessing you don't really care what I told you was what the obstacle was, right? Um, to, you know, wear a clown suit to class all week. Okay, no sweat, done, right? Um, to make a fool of yourself at work. Okay, gladly. I don't I have no problem with that. Do that anyway for a million dollars real quick too, right? You would think whatever the obstacle is between me and that, I'm going to do whatever it takes to remove that obstacle. And yet why do we allow obstacles between us and prayer to remain in place? Many of us have obstacles that are keeping us from prayer. They're preventing us from prayer. But what if, what if the preventions to prayer are really just prompts to pray that we're misunderstanding? What if the very thing that was keeping you from prayer is the thing you needed to be praying about? See, Jeff, I'm just too busy. Oh, well, maybe you should pray about your busyness. Well, Jeff, I'm just so tired and weary. Uh, well, maybe we should pray about your weariness. 
Jeff, you don't know, I'm just, I'm distant from God. I just haven't, it's just like, I, there's a relational, oh, well, maybe we should pray about the distance. What if the things that were preventing you from prayer were really prompts to prayer that you were just misunderstanding? And God was saying, I'm, let's talk. Let's, let's, let's talk. I'm inviting you, prompting you into prayer. Now, the fifth question that is not listed but ought to be asked as well is this. Lord, would you teach me to pray? Would you teach me to pray? I appreciate the way theologian John Anwuchikwa says in his little book on prayer, great little book, right? Um, he said, Jesus stared death square in the face, knowing his fate was inescapable. Now, how did he face it? On his knees in prayer. That's how Jesus faced death, on his knees in prayer. Now, if Jesus faced death on his knees in prayer, how much more so should you and I face life on our knees in prayer? Lord, would you teach me to pray? That ought to be the posture, the ongoing prayer of our lives. Lord, would you teach me to pray? When I don't want to pray, Lord, would you teach me to pray? When I'm too busy, Lord, would you teach me to pray? When I feel like I'm relationally distant, would you teach me to pray? When I feel like there are circumstances in my life that are preventing me from prayer, God, would you teach me to pray? When I'm at odds with my spouse, would you teach me to pray? When I'm at odds with God, would you teach me to pray? This idea of, of drawing near to the Father in prayer is part of the heartbeat of the author of Hebrews. And in Hebrews, chapter 4, he gets us to a place of prayer. Look at what the author says in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 and 15. He says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God. We just sang about him, right? He's my cornerstone. He's my rock, my solid rock. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The author of Hebrews gives us two foundations for prayer here. He says there are two kind of foundational bricks that you need to lay before you build your house of prayer. Number one, Jesus is your high priest. He's your high priest. Now, many of us don't have a category for high priest. We're like, what are you talking about? What does that mean? How, how am I even to think about it? Well, the high priest in the book of Hebrews and throughout the Old Testament is sort of like the defense attorney for God's people. Now, the analogy breaks down, so you can't carry it too far, but that's essentially what he is. He's the defense, uh, the defense attorney for God's people. In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1, it says, since then we have a great high priest, right, who is, uh, excuse me, for every high priest, chapter 5, verse 1, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. So the high priest, what the high priest would do is the high priest would go before God and make a sacrifice on behalf of all of God's people to atone for or cover their sins. That's what the high priest did. Now, don't miss this. That tells you that there is a God. He's not just make-believe. He's not just hocus pocus or imaginary. There is a God and that you are separated from him by your sin. That is what the high priest tells us. You can't earn your way back to God. You need someone to make atonement for your sin in your place. You can't do it yourself. 
But that's what the high priest does. He comes in and he makes this sacrifice for your sin, which separates you from God. And that's exactly what Jesus did. On the cross, he went before God the Father and swallowed up the wrath of God in your place. He was your high priest. He was your defense attorney. He took all of your guilt and gave you all of his innocence. That's what happened on the cross. And so the author of Hebrews says, Jesus is our high priest. And prayer builds on this confession of faith. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. Hebrews chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 10 all point to this confession of faith. You see, prayer without a confession of faith is simply hocus pocus, right? It's just an idea that we kind of let float off. Sometimes we'll think of, of prayer as though, as though we're letting a balloon go, right? It's filled with helium and we're outside and we let go and there it goes. I hope it doesn't go in the ocean, right? Um, Peter will call us... Um, and that's how we think about prayer. We're like, oh, there, 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 there it goes. I hope it works. But the author of Hebrews is saying prayer is not like that at all. Prayer is rooted to your high priest, Christ himself. Prayer is your confession, right? Prayer without a Christ-centered confession is no prayer. So we're rooting it to Christ. This is why we pray in Jesus' name. We're saying, I'm coming in the name of Jesus. These are my credentials. This is my hope and stay when all, around, all, around, all else around me gives way, right? So a confession of faith that does not lead you to prayer is an empty confession. But prayer without the roots of confession of faith is like letting go of the balloon. So the author of Hebrews is saying, Jesus is my high priest. This is my confession. Therefore, I pray. Jesus is my high priest. I have a defense attorney who has earned my right before the Father. This is my confession. I have hidden myself in Christ. So I pray. So I boldly approach God in prayer. When we know that Jesus has satisfied the wrath of God and reconciled us to God, and when that is the heartbeat of our confession, when this is our primary story or narrative from which we live, prayer is a glad peace. We are conversing with our Father who is in inclined towards our well-being. And so the author goes on in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find uh, grace to help in time of need. And so there are four prompts to pray here. He says, draw near to God, draw near to the throne of grace, draw near with confidence, and draw near in order to receive help. First, he says to draw near to God. This is a thematic thread throughout the book of Hebrews, the idea of us drawing near to God, which in many instances was, was something nobody would have imagined. You don't draw near to God. You stand back at a distance. You live in fear of him. He is high up on the mountain, and we fear him. We don't go near him. And the author of Hebrews is saying, yes, he is holy. There is no one like him. He is the consuming fire, and yet in Christ, we can draw near to him. Now, this isn't a physical drawing near to him as though, you know, we, we kind of scoot up physically to him. It's a spiritual, relational drawing near. Often we'll say it this way here at Catalyst Church. We don't want to tell you all of the things that you have to do in order to get to God. We want to help you marvel at what God has done in Christ to get to you. This is a relational aspect of Christianity. 
So let me just ask the question, how is it with you and God? How is it with you and God? Let me, let me turn the question around a little bit. Are you drawing near to him? Are you drawing near to God in prayer? You are not meant to live your Christian life at a distance with God. You're meant to draw near to him. Now, we can get really technical when it comes to things spiritual, and we can think, well, what, 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 is, what does that mean? How's that? But, but at the heart of it is this question. Are you drawing near to God? James says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Well, Jeff, my prayers just don't feel like they're good enough. My, my prayers don't feel like they're smart enough. My prayers don't feel like they're long enough. You're missing the point. You're missing the point right? We know plenty of people with plenty of words that don't say much at the end of it all. That's not the point of prayer. Are you drawing near to God? So if you're here this morning and you feel far from God, that's a prompt to pray. That's a prompt. When you feel that and you're like, man, I feel distant from God, that's a prompt to stop whatever you're doing and draw near to God in prayer. Distance from God is a prompt to draw near to God. Draw near to God. Draw near, the author says, to the throne of grace. Now, this is an image that is meant to help us think about and think rightly about God. We have the throne, and we have the throne of grace. We have God who is on the throne. He is the source of authority, and what we find at that throne is grace. We find grace. God, who is on the throne, is inclined towards your well-being. God, who is on the throne, who is absolutely sovereign, who tells the lightning where to strike its mark, who tells the wind where to blow and when to blow and how to blow and the rate at which to blow, that God is inclined towards your well-being. And yes, he is on the throne, the throne of grace. Donald Miller is a business leader um, that I follow online, and, and uh, he does a lot of good stuff. And in his podcast one day, he said, imagine, we, he was making the point, we often get into these negative stories that we tell ourselves. He said, imagine for a moment, imagine for a moment that the world, the universe, was conspiring for your good. And he was making the point, let's change the way we think. But he said, imagine for a moment that everything in the world was actually conspiring for you to, for you to succeed. It was conspiring for your good. Imagine if the, the world was conspiring for your good. And when I heard him say that, I thought to myself, wait a minute. As a Christian, I don't have to imagine that. I don't have to imagine that at all. I have a God who is sitting on the throne and is working all things together for the good of those who love him. It's far better than some idea of the universe conspiring for my good. God himself is moving in that direction. He's moving all things towards my good. You don't have to imagine it. When you are in awe of God, that's a prompt to pray. So when you feel far from God, it's a prompt to pray. When you're in awe of God, that's a prompt to pray. And then he says, draw near with confidence. Confidence ought to characterize the prayer life of the believer. But how sad when we are altogether absent where we should be most confident. Now, he's not talking about bravado, right? He's not talking about puff up your chest like the, the young employee who's, you know, it's his first week on the job and he's going to walk into the boss's office and tell him how the world ought to really work, right? That's not what he's talking about at all. He's talking about confidence. Our confidence is not that we've earned the right to be heard. Our confidence is not that God will answer our prayers exactly as we expect. 
Our confidence is that the Christ who Christ has adopted us into the family and that our Father will answer our prayers better than we could ever imagine. Think about it this way. Who has the audacity to wake up the king at 3 a.m. and ask for a cup of water? Who has that kind of audacity? Only a little child, right? We have that kind of access to God. 3 a.m., when the king doesn't want to be bothered, we can walk into his chambers and say, Dad, can I have a glass of water? And he responds for our good. It responds for our good. We have that kind of access in prayer. Your confidence in Christ ought to override anything that keeps you from approaching your Father's throne of grace. I can't pray because of this. I can't pray because of that. Well, maybe, but that's brokenness, right? We ought to be broken before God in prayer. We ought to be both broken and confident. In fact, that's the only way to pray, out of brokenness and confidence. So when you feel broken, But when you're marveling at Christ, that's a prompt to pray. Fourthly and finally, the author tells us to draw near to receive help. Draw near to receive help. I love the way the author closes this verse. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Anyone need help this morning? And the answer is yes, of course, Anybody have a moment this past week when you're like, I give up, I just can't, I need help? The answer is yes, right? But every wince of weariness or fleeting feeling of frustration is an open invitation to pray. But what's the one thing that keeps us from asking for help? It's pride, right? Pride is the one thing that'll keep us from asking for help. So are you too proud to pray? Are you too proud to pray? If you're too proud to pray, you're too proud to be saved. If you're not willing to say, Lord Jesus, help me, then you're too proud to say, Lord Jesus, save me. But if you're here this morning and you're a person who needs help, then you're not disqualified for, for prayer. You're in the perfect position to pray. So when you become aware of your need for help, that's not a reason not to pray. That's a prompt to pray. So, is that your prayer? Lord Jesus, save me. Is that your confession, that Jesus is your high priest who was without sin, yet on the cross bore all of your sin before God? This is the Christ we come to in communion. In just a moment, we're gonna celebrate the Lord's Supper, and as we come forward to the table, as we draw near to the table to feast on the bread and the juice, let us draw near to God who sits on the throne of grace and gladly gives help to us in times of need. Hear this from the author of Hebrews. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he, Jesus, holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is the Christ who in the midst of your weariness says, come to me and I will give you rest. Let's pray together.